Father, I pray that you would remind us this morning, as the message of these songs is declared to our hearts and as your word emphasizes from its powerful proclamation, that the riches that we have in Christ Jesus are not to be compared with anything that this world can boast. I pray that you would remind us of this, Lord, when the flesh seeks to distract us from the call to lay down our life, to take up our cross, and to follow you. I pray that you would remind us of this, Lord, if we should ever be tempted by comfort and convenience in this life at the expense of a more faithful and a more consistent walk in obedience to your holy word. We pray that you would remind us, dear Jesus, of the precious wealth of your great blood that was shed on us on Calvary's tree, shed for us on Calvary's tree, that we may not soon forget and like the nine lepers that were healed, forget to come back and to serve you with all our heart. I pray that you would remind us at your table today at communion, at, your, at the Lord's table, that the blood that was spilled on our behalf and the body that was broken was the most precious commodity in all the universe, and by its purchasing power, every sin of every uh, one in this room who trusts in Christ alone has been atoned. And not only this, everyone for all of time who places their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins will find in Him a perfect and powerful Savior whose precious blood can wash away their stains and the judgment that they deserve for transgressing the holy law of the God who was and who is and who is to come, the same yesterday, today, and forever, whose word is established and will never wither or fail. Lord, we pray that you would encourage your saints through the proclamation of your word today, and that you would draw the lost into salvation, even as faith comes by the hearing of the word. We pray that in all of this, Jesus Christ would be made glorious in our hearts and our minds as you deepen our affections for you and as you enhance our ability to comprehend the truths of the gospel. In all of this, Lord, I pray that your church would be equipped and your gospel would go forward and your kingdom would advance to your praise and to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a precious gift it is to gather as the saints of God as we do this morning. And in times like these where there is a marginally higher cost, you could say, to do so, I hope that it reminds us, I hope these times remind us that whatever the cost is worth it because the value of our reward in Christ is so superior. I think we'll find that as a theme among others in our text today. And I invite you to turn to the Scriptures by joining me in Isaiah chapter 28. Would you turn there this morning? In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. The title of this morning's message is A Tested Stone. The author of Isaiah, the great prophet, as well as the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, uses the imagery of a stone, and you might recall that imagery from our worship text today as well, Psalm 118. The metaphor of a rock or a foundation stone, a cornerstone, a tested stone, is common through Scripture. So this morning, the goal of this message is to communicate the value and surety of Christ from the message of the prophets, Isaiah 28, all the way through to the message of the apostles, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is a groundwork and context message for our 1 Peter series. Oftentimes there's a citation in the New Testament, and I find it valuable to go back to the Old to find the source from which that quotation was drawn. And so that's what we're doing today as we consider Isaiah 28, 14 through 22. Out of reverence for God's Word, would you stand this morning? Again, according to the pattern given us in Nehemiah 9, a posture of reverence before the Lord's Word as we hear these inarguable and inherent truths. Consider now the Word of God in Isaiah 28, verse 14 through 22. Therefore, hear the Word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. 
Verse 18, then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you, for morning by morning it will pass through, by night, by day and by night, and it will, sheer, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused, to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong, for I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord of hosts against the whole land. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The symbolic language of redemption often references imagery that has a rich historical context through the pages of Scripture as the purposes of God and salvation of a people unfold through the ages. Such is our metaphor that we're considering today a stone or a rock, a foundational reality that is pictured by this imagery. The metaphorical reference to the Messiah as a, as a foundation or a cornerstone is a great example of this. 1 Peter 2.24 refers to Jesus as a living stone. Would you turn there next with me? Again, just to remind you, 1 Peter is our book that we've been considering on Communion Sundays. And today, we're laying some foundation for a better understanding of, a, of a Peter, the apostle's use of this metaphor of stone. Notice in 1 Peter 2.4, as you come to him, speaking of Christ, a living stone, so there Peter uses the reference living stone to refer to Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. And this now, verse 6, is a citation of our passage in Isaiah 28. So Isaiah, or Peter is pointing to this reference point of understanding when he quotes Isaiah saying, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Other references are compiled in this, in this passage including verse 7, which says, quote, The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And finally, verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So here we see 1 Peter tied to Isaiah 28. 1 Peter 2.4 refers to Jesus as a living stone set in place, establishing the structural reference point for a house or, or for the integrity of his church, like a stone fixed in the foundation of of a house. I remember laying up the brick on my fireplace in my own home, and I started with the corners. The corners in a, sta- in a running bond of bricks um, are overlapped, and you've seen this on the corner of a brick building. And those corners, any mason will tell you, are the most important to establish the reference points of that structure. Once your corners have been identified and have been laid up square, even Nathan, a bricklayer here among us, I've seen this time and again, he will set those corners and lay them up. And they are the most important reference points as a building is being constructed. This is a similar, this is the analogy even in our own experience that helps us understand what Peter is getting at. Christ is something like this. But he is not just a dead stone, he is a living stone, and he is set in place establishing the structural reference point of integrity for his church. Peter goes further, describing each believer also like a stone. We, like living stones, are fitted in a spiritual house for the purposes of true and worthy worship. So there's a joining together in this imagery, there's a foundational strength in this imagery, there's a reference point of important structural uh, plan, purpose, and integrity, and so forth. So where does this language come from? Well, at first it may appear cryptic, you know, kind of encoded language or foreign or mystical in some way to the modern reader. But as it turns out, we've noted already, Peter is referencing the great prophetic record of Isaiah in this passage. 
Uh, Peter is uh, quoting from an author of Scripture who's gone before. Now, Isaiah introdu- he introduces this concept of the Messiah, Isaiah does, as Zion's true foundations. Isaiah introduces the concept of the Messiah as Zion's true foundation stone, true foundational reality in the context of counterfeit covenant schemes. In other words, the people were building on false, failed, illegitimate foundations for their order, for their society, for their nation's hope, and so forth. And so the prophet says, the foundations of your reasoning, of your hope for the future, of your confidence that you will see tomorrow are flawed. And I call you to build upon the only sure and true, tested, and precious stone. And if you do not, you will collapse, you will crumble, you will fail when the instruments of God's judgment are brought to bear against your schemes. These were the ideals and events, in Isaiah's time, leading up to the exile. The prophetic warnings were largely unheeded at this time, unfortunately, as the foundations of the society were continually corrupted by more and more idolatry and compromise building on wrong stones or wrong foundations. Eventually, the people would realize there is no place of stability outside the messianic hope of Jesus Christ. The people would learn the hard way, as we will see. There is no place of stability outside the messianic hope of Jesus Christ as their plans failed, their nation was occupied, and they were led back into exile. Nevertheless, As you recall in recent series from Nehemiah, repentance flourished in his day, Nehemiah's day, as the foundations were reestablished in Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. I refer back to our previous messages from that era of Israel's history. Why? Because there again, they reestablished the foundations of their hope on the messianic truth of God's Word. They rose in reverence of the Scriptures, read them for a quarter of the day, confessed their sins, the sins of their fathers, and reconstructed all of life, thought, and society once again on the only stone that has enduring power, the hope of redemption and the coming Messiah. So we see this repentance flourishing in His time, and during this era... There is a reestablishing of true religion, if you will, in the pattern and thus in the pattern of the great prophets and faithful leaders of old, the apostle Peter proclaims to the elect exiles, that's who he refers to his audience as in 1 Peter 1, he proclaims the elect exiles throughout Asia Minor that Jesus Christ is the only sure foundation. His words are all the more meaningful, that is Peter's, in light of their context once we turn to their referent, that is the uh, quotation in Isaiah 28. And may I add, these words are indeed all the more meaningful in our day when we are witnessing the fallout in American society right now of building on foundations for hope for a future and for the establishment of a nation and a people and a consciousness and a faith on something that is not secure. While the foundations of our hope are crumbling, I pray that we would hear the message from Isaiah, hear the message from the Apostle Peter to return to the only foundation stone that will support the building of an individual and his eternal hope or of a nation and its sustainability, and that foundation is Jesus Christ alone. Let me give you a heading whereby we will look a little more closely at Isaiah 28 this morning. Christ as cornerstone revealed in light of four things this morning. Isaiah reveals Christ as cornerstone in light of, number one, a covenant historical occasion. So there's a challenge, there's a counterfeit covenant, there's a situation uh, that is in the background of Isaiah's writing that helps reveal, by contrast, the surety of hope in the coming Christ. Secondly, Christ as cornerstone is revealed in light of absolute standards. Stone represents, and later other imagery is compiled to make this case a line and a plumb line. They represent absolute rule, authoritative standards, reference point by which everything else is measured. Number three, Christ's cornerstone is revealed in light of judicial reckoning, that is, consequences of the contrary. And number four, we'll close this morning considering these as gospel categories. We'll tie them to Christ, as we see Peter do, and then relate it to even the communion table this morning. Number one, Christ as cornerstone revealed in light of covenant historical occasion. 
Turning back to our main text, Isaiah 28, 14, we have these words, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol, that would be the place of the dead, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, so this would be an agent of affliction, whip, something's happening, that's, or something, their trouble is brewing, when this whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. What's going on in this passage? What is the historical occasion where the people needed to be reminded of where true hope and refuge lie, and where true escape from the whip of judgment is to be found, and where true covenant bonds will not fail them? Well, there were enemies surrounding God's people. This was written in the time of Hezekiah, a little background for you. In Hezekiah's day, some of the enemies of Israel came in the form of the Assyrians from the north and eventually Babylon who conquered them more toward the south. There was a famous and fearsome king of Assyria named Sennacherib. Sennacherib was kind of one of the, think of him as a terrorist extremist type individual. And his uh, successful battle campaigns and overrunning nations and subjecting them to his tyrannical rule were infamous at the time. And this struck fear in the hearts of the people of God. But the question is, where did they turn? Did they turn to the Lord and the foundation of their hope in Him? Or did they turn to a false hope? Well, they turned to a false hope. Hezekiah and his leaders and so forth decided it would be a good idea to seek allies against Assyria. So they made a covenant with Egypt. Egypt represented death. Egypt represented captivity and slavery. But now the people were going back to Egypt in their foreign policy to secure an entangling alliance to help assure their safety against the threat of an invading nation. This covenant relationship with Egypt was wicked. Why? Egypt did not acknowledge Israel's God, and Israel was commanded to be holy, set apart, and uncompromised to be a light to the nations. How could you be a light to the pagans in Egypt when you confess that you need them in order to be protected from your enemies. You do not need Egypt. You need only Yahweh. Only the God in, that uh, is the author and finisher of every single nation. In his, in his hand, nations rise and fall. Kingdoms are, uh, and kings are set in authority or taken down in a moment. During prayer this morning, it struck me in Gene's prayer, he was mentioning how something as microscopic as the coronavirus has the power to bring the world to its knees. And I thanked him for, I thank him for that analogy. That is a powerful illustration of how God, with just something you can't even see without a microscope, can destroy countries, peoples, and nations. Now, Israel was not trusting in that God at this time, but instead they were trying to secure their own national borders and stability by alliances with unbelieving nations. And this was a covenant that stood in compromise with their relationship with the Lord. And so there were going to be consequences for this kind of thing. Ephraim would experience consequences. That would be a name for Israel to the north, the northern kingdom. In chapter 28, verse 4, we have this language, the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is in which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripened fig before summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In other words, in this imagery, like a, a fig ripe on a tree that's ripe for the plucking, or like a fading flower, just one footstep crams it into the dirt, the national pride of nations is as vulnerable as these kinds of things. And Ephraim to the north and Judah to the south would soon realize this. Now, this message was from the prophet to their leaders. He says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you who rule this people in Jerusalem. The word of God is directed toward the representatives of the people. This is a concept that is often lost in our day, but needs to be regained. Representative headship. A people are accountable according to their leadership. In part, America as a nation will be judged based upon the leadership of our governor, our president, and the different legislative bodies that govern and make policy for us as a people. Therefore, as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the role which I fill in this pulpit today, and all others who claim or, or who uh, have that role as proclaimers of the gospel, legitimate pastors and preachers in church, they have a duty to bring the word of God to the scoffing authorities of our day, just as Isaiah brought the word of God to the scoffing authorities of his. 
Uh, yesterday, we were gathered at, outside of the uh, Capitol in St. Paul, and I tried to take a small step to do this. You'll see two signs hanging in the foyer. Both of them have scripture references on them. And I just made it my mission to go as a pastor, drive three hours south, and stand with a sign that says, Minnesota churches, we ought to obey God rather than man, a quote from Acts 5.29, and to give this statement of conviction, that when the Lord Jesus Christ and His commandments for His church comes in contact with the authorities of our land, we must obey God rather than men. The confessions have said as much. The apostles have given us that witness and testimony. It's been said in Christian history like this. Whenever there's an authority who requires what God forbids or forbids what God requires, we are to respectfully disobey that authority and instead follow our Lord Jesus Christ. This, saints, is why we are gathered in this room today. Technically, according to the orders of our government, this could be considered illegal, so to speak. However, I, may, I made the case uh, in St. Paul that, in fact, our government is out, bound, out of bounds with his God-given and limited authority, ruling against the law that gives us the freedom to assemble even in our nation, and an even higher law still, which is that of Jesus Christ, who commands his church to gather. Thus, we are here. What are we doing when we take this stand? We are saying to the scoffers, that is, those who mock, belittle, despise, reject, ignore the Word of God, even our leaders, even Governor Tim Walls in this state, we are saying to the scoffers, you must hear the Word of God, and you are obligated to rule according to His authority. And just as it was in the days of Jerusalem, so it is in the days of Minnesota today, if we do not build our society upon our rock, Jesus Christ, there are consequences. God does not take well to false covenant relationships. And so we are to be faithful to Him. We see this language of counterfeit covenant in verse 15. We have made a covenant with death, the people say, the scoffing leaders say, and with Sheol we have made an agreement. So the, what will protect us against this threat? You know, we have a threat right now. The coronavirus represents a threat that has gripped the consciousness of an, our entire world. There was something similar at the time of the writing here. That would be Assyria, the uh, hostile nation to the north and so forth. So who will protect us from this? Well, we make a covenant. That is, we have shored up our fortunes by this alliance with Egypt and so forth, as we mentioned. But the scriptures, the prophet says, this is a covenant with death. In other words, in order to escape death, you're making an agreement with death. It's to illustrate the foolishness of such a thing. You're joining your captors, you're trusting in lies, you're allowing yourself to be deceived, you are deluded and delusional. And you have taken refuge in lies and falsehood. You have taken shelter. And it doesn't matter how confident you are in this absurd scheme. Your confidence will, will soon turn into sheer terror as you see that the foundations of your hope crumble when the occupying armies of these enemy nations overrun your borders. The counterfeit covenant is insufficient to the task. There is no salvation outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. In the ultimate sense, this is the message. No foreign policy entangling alliances, treaties with Egypt, or others co-belligerents against a perceived threat will prove sufficient. These false and compromising idolatrous trust, uh, uh, statements of trust and false hope will backfire on, on us just as, the, just as they did in the day of Sennacherib. He invades... And sure enough, the people of God are now surrounded by armies being starved out in their own capital city. But Hezekiah repents, and he turns to the Lord. And what happens? Well, you can cross-reference this later on your own time. But the angel of the Lord, in the course of one night, killed 185,000 enemy soldiers. 185,000. By the time they woke up, they realized their numbers were decimated, and they hightailed it back to Assyria, never to return to threaten uh, Jerusalem again. So you see this contrast here. All it took was Hezekiah, the leader of the people, not scoffing the Lord by false entangling covenants, but repenting of that and turning to trusting not in chariots and horses, but the God who had ordained them and the foundations of their society in the first place, and God answered, with supernatural deliverance. This is the message 
that Isaiah is bringing to the people then. And it's a message that rings true throughout the pages of all of history, even to our day. Note the telling language. Trusting in anything else for security, assurance, and hope is trusting in lies and falsehood. A false, it's, it's like building a castle of cards in a windstorm. It's like building a house on sand when the floods come. These are the images that we see in Scripture and even in our day that help us to understand the futility of such an endeavor. Don't make a covenant with death and Sheol. Proverbs 8, 35 through 36, you can study again. When you have, a time, have the time, says, all who hate me love death. There are two options. You either make an alliance with death or you make an alliance with the one who has defeated our last enemy, Jesus Christ, Lord over death and the grave. The wages of sin is death and there's only one escape. You can't escape through any covenant relationship with anything else, only a covenant relationship with our covenant head, Jesus Christ, who has proven triumphant over the grave, is sufficient to earn for us stability in this life and strength for a nation, but even more importantly, eternal life for each believing soul. Christ as cornerstone is revealed in the light of this covenant historical occasion. There's a great object lesson that Isaiah and his cohorts are living through to illustrate that the only sure foundation upon which to build a society is the hope of God's Word and His coming Messiah, and for us, the Messiah who has come. Second major point, Christ as cornerstone is revealed in light of absolute standards. What is this stone imagery? What does it indicate? Verse 16 and 17 are helpful in that regard. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And notice 17a, And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. So what does it mean to have the hope of the Messiah, God's redemptive plan, Jesus Christ Himself, as a stone, as a cornerstone, as a living stone. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means that He is the absolute standard. A standard is like a rule. Um, let me give you an illustration. Um, so at my house, we have a zip line. Uh, kids, you'll appreciate this because I rebuilt the platform. Some of you visited recently, and we had four pallets with one on top, and I knew its days were numbered. In spite of what Pinterest tells you, uh, pallets have only marginal utility. And this was proven over three years, and I thought to myself, you know, that's going to collapse. Sure enough, uh, somebody was just escaped um, calamity. They're hanging onto the zip line. One of the kids, they stepped off, and they left the pallet uh, tower in a, in a pile behind them. So me and the boys decided we better rebuild this thing. So we got some lumber, and I told Vera, my daughter, to grab a level. You guys know what a level is. It's just a square piece like so, and there's a tiny bubble in the middle. And when you set a level on top of a platform and you adjust accordingly, that level tells you when it's perfectly flat, right? Or let's say you have posts, and both apply in this case. Those posts need to be level, otherwise, you know, it'll be out of square. And that level tells you when your zip line platform is level and flat and so forth, plumb and flat. So the, what is the standard in this analogy, in this picture? The standard is that little yellow level. Someone may think that is unimportant. They may not realize it's used, but it just so happens when you're building a zipline tower, it could be the most important tool so that the zipline tower isn't in a pile behind you, you know, and it's built correctly. That is a rule or a standard, that level. It's that whereby you judge whether a platform is plumb and straight. This is the language of Scripture when we read in verse 17, I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. How do you know when a country and a people is level and straight? How will you know when a society which is like a building is on sure footing and will not fall down when a test comes, like an enemy on the borders threatening them or like a coronavirus threatening them from inside their borders, inside their body? Well, you know it by the one standard, that level, that instrument, that tool that judges whether a nation is in line with that which is sustainable, strong, and enduring. And it just so happens to be the Lord himself and his attributes, justice, that which he declares is right and true, as revealed in his holy law and all through scripture, is the line whereby you judge whether your nation is crooked or not. 
Righteousness, again, is a plumb line whereby you judge whether your nation is the leaning tower of Pisa or not. You know that structure that's famous for leaning? Why is that structure famous? Because it's so odd. Um, Most structures like that would fall down, and in fact, there's efforts being made to shore it up. It's in trouble because it doesn't have a good foundation. And a nation is like that. Unless there is a standard and a rule which is upheld by which every element of that nation is judged, it is compromised and it is doomed. Now, this standard, Jesus Christ and the Word of God, is, as you see in our Scripture, a tested stone. When has Christ ever failed me? Never, I tell you, not even one time. Is there a sin in your life that is stronger than, his, than the power of His blood to redeem? Never. I say He is a tested stone, and the power of His blood will redeem the most hideous sinner if He but places faith in that absolute standard to justify Him. He is a precious cornerstone. When we think of something as precious, it's established, the cost is established usually because of its rarity. In this case, there is only one. Christ is precious because He is the only cornerstone. He is the only way that a life is built that will not fall. An individual soul will not collapse. Upon death, that individual soul will enter the favor and presence of Almighty God to worship Him eternally and without end. But without that one and only cornerstone, Jesus Christ, a life collapses in death and then careens into hell itself. Christ is precious and He is sure you can be satisfied or you can have the absolute reassurance and confidence that when your life, a church, a nation, any institution really, is built upon Him that it will stand. Because Christ's cornerstone is the absolute standard. He is a refuge in Zion. As we think of Christ's stone, think of Him as a place of grounded assurance in chaotic times. A place of grounded assurance in times of uncertainty and volatile circumstances. A time, times of confusion where everyone seems to be drawn about and in a time of panic. Notice, for instance, this language that you see right in our text today. Whoever believes will not be in haste. What does that phrase mean? Well, you could perhaps substitute haste for panic. Whoever believes in a precious, sure, tested, foundational cornerstone, Jesus Christ, will not be in panic. They will not be frantic. They will not be desperate. They will not be running around like a chicken with their head cut off trying to find desperately some hope for the future. Again, it's so easy to make application to our day, is it not? How many of us have read Hope for a Cure for the Coronavirus in any number of headlines that changes from week to week? People are publishing things as fast as they can. News uh, organizations want to be the first to get the scoop. Different technology companies want the first to get the credit. Different politicians want to be the first to offer hope. And they're running around in haste, frantic, desperate, panicked, because they don't have a cornerstone, a sure foundation, and a tested stone upon which to build faith in the midst of a huge scare like the pandemic that we're in right now. Where is that faith to be found? Not in a vaccine, not in a technocratic state, not in a body of world leaders, not in a new structure for hope for the future that's based upon a humanistic endeavor, a new Babel being built in our day. No, only upon the absolute standard, Jesus Christ, because He is the tested, precious, exclusive, sure, and tried stone that will never fail. He is the absolute standard. He is the holy weight and measure. By His justice and His righteousness, by the attributes of God, by the virtues of the divine, these all things are measured. He is the rule, the reference, the plumb line, the standard, the foundation. Point number three this morning. Christ as cornerstone is revealed in light of, first two, covenant historical occasion, the concept of absolute standards, and number three, judicial reckoning. This would be the consequences of counterfeit covenant. Notice 17b and following. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. The waters will overwhelm the shelter. When your covenant with death, will, then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. Now I want you to notice three instruments of judgment that are referenced in the language. Number one, hail, verse 17. Also in 17, waters, and number three, scourge, which could also be translated like a lash 
or a whip. So the Lord uses or he pictures his judgment through the prophet by these three references, these three images, hail, waters, and whip. Now think of hail in the context, for example, of the plagues of ancient Egypt. The hail comes raining down God's anger from heaven and destroys the crops overnight. Think of the hail of fire and brimstone, if you will, in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah refused to repent. There's not even found ten righteous men among them. After Lot escapes by the skin of his teeth, the heavens rain down fire, hail, if you will, of God's judgment and anger, and that city is destroyed. This is a picture, it's an event oracle, it's an event in history that preaches to us the gospel that there's a day of reckoning for everyone. It may not come in literal fire on Cross Lake, Minnesota, but it will come in a literal accounting before the judgment seat of an almighty God when every individual passes via death from this life and stands before the judgment throne of the almighty. That's what these images are meant to conjure up. Secondly, a flood. The waters will overwhelm the shelter. Where was it safe in Noah's day? Hey, kids, in Noah's day when the floods came, where was the only safe place? The ark. That is correct. The ark represented the place where God had secured his people. Now, what if you built a shelter outside the ark and said, hey, I'm going to make this place on the highest ground I can find, my sure place, and the floods won't destroy me. Would you be right or would you be wrong, kids? You'd be wrong. Those floods rose until they were 15 cubits above the highest point on all the earth to illustrate that there is no other place to find refuge outside of the way of salvation that God has provided. And that's what the ark pictured. Now, in this time, God had provided a way of salvation through His written word. The expectation of the Messiah coming and His rule and His standards were the only foundation upon which a nation should be built. But if they took refuge somewhere else, compromised that reality by these entangling alliances, as, as we said, it would be like making a covenant with death. Oh, the floods will never reach this high point. We've made an alliance with Syria. And then they watch, like in the days of Noah, and God's instrument of judgment comes upon them until the water is over their heads and they gurgle away in a watery grave as a victim of God's judgments and His anger at the day, at the time of His reckoning. This is the fearful reality that the prophet is bringing to the people. And then the third picture, a scourge. He says, when, then your covenant with death will be annulled, that means it will be destroyed, tore up, worthless. Your agreement with Sheol will not stand, proven foolish, a ridiculous scheme, deceptive and, and full of lies as we've seen, when the overwhelming scourge passes through. And this is the image of a whip. Now this is repeated from verse 15. With Sheol we have made an agreement, the people say, when the overwhelming whip passes through. I want to refer to you back a few verses in verse 10. Notice this language. And every time you hear a repeat in the phrasing, I want you to think of a whip coming down. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line. You can almost feel it, can't you? These words are whipping the people, as it were, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. This is dramatic language, people. This illustrates to us the fearful reality of the striking and merciless, whipping judgments of the Lord, and there is only one escape. There is only one escape. One of the signs we held up in St. Paul was fear God only. I think the church needs to repent because as I've said to many, I think we have an inferiority complex. We fear the whip of government. We fear the consequences of the powers that be in our world. But in reality, we should fear the one who has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. 
just a simple blow of a death or whatever, imprisonment or even torture in this life is nothing compared to the judgments of God. The judicial reckoning is a reality throughout the ages. It's a consistent testimony of all of Scripture. And the people needed to hear it at this time when they're flirting with the idea of entanglements and covenants and putting their trust in idols and relationships outside of the exclusive word and salvation that God had provided them. The instruments of God's judgment, hail, flood, and scourging whip, this action of God's word being driven into them is a picture of this. The tables are turning. Areas known for defeat by the Philistines or defeat of the Philistines now will be areas where their enemies will rise up against them. Verse 21, the Lord will rise up on Mount Perizim. This is a place where great victories had been won against the Philistine during David's age. In the past, it says, in the valley of Gibeon, he will be aroused to do his deeds. Strange is his deed, and to his work, alien is his work. Something extraordinary will happen, in other words. Areas that were once commemorated for victory over Israel's enemies, they will now become the victims of their enemies in those same regions. The tables will turn. Uh, Assyria will rise up against her with that whip. And if they won't listen to God's word the easy way, through his prophets, they will hear the whip of God's word the hard way through his judgments. And this is the hard message that we hear in these passages today. How is, this decree, how is this decree received? Verse 22, Now therefore do not scoff. You hear how serious these words are? And light of the Lord's power to enforce them. Isaiah in his prophecy returns to addressing the leaders. He says, Therefore do not scoff. Who's he speaking to? Those he referenced in verse 14. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Then he gives these reasons. And then he says, now, therefore, do not scoff, verse 22, lest your bonds be made strong. You go back into slavery. Remember the title of our message from Nehemiah, Sackcloth or Slavery. Repent of your sin, or you will become the subjects to tyrants. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. What are the consequences of scoffing? What are the consequences, again? of taking lightly, of dismissing, ignoring, making fun of, or mocking, or rejecting the foundation stones of a godly society. The consequences are your bonds will be made strong, the whip of God's judgments will be brought against you, this decree of destruction will ring forth like an aircraft uh, uh, warning sirens, and pretty soon the explosions of God's day of reckoning will draw closer as the mushroom clouds of His judgment drown out the noonday sun. Now this is the picture. Christ as cornerstone revealed in light of this historical occasion, the concept of Him as our absolute standard, and the threat of judicial reckoning. Should we not take this message of Christ as our cornerstone all the more serious in light of its context? You bet we ought to. Let me close with gospel categories and application. The scriptures say that hearing comes, that faith, excuse me, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When the word of God is given, is presented, is proclaimed without the rough edges, so to speak, blunted by the humanism of tickling ear presentations to give people what they prefer to listen to, when the word of God is brought with all its authoritative piercing quality, according to Hebrews, like a two-edged sword that has the ability to divide between soul and spirit, it will, as God chooses, have an effect on the hearer. He will realize his sin and the judgment that he deserves, and he will seek to listen and escape the whip the easy way. What is the easy way, so to speak? I don't mean easy in a cavalier sense. I just mean that he escapes when he realizes that someone was whipped for him. This is the message of the prophet as he continues. Turn to Isaiah 53. Where is the escape of that precept upon precept, that line upon line whipping that a nation of people, an individual deserves? How can we escape that fearful reality? Again, as you're turning to Isaiah 53, remember that this message has been preceded by Isaiah 28 saying in verse 19, as often as it passes 
Though it will take you through, passes through, it will take you from morning by morning. It will pass through day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. So there is a posture of the heart where the message of God's judgments is sheer terror. And that's if he remains unrepentant in his sin on that day of reckoning. But there is a posture of the heart that hears the word of God, repents, and realizes that someone else was whipped in their place. Who is this? Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely, speaking of our Messiah, speaking of Jesus Christ, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes, we are healed. We, all we like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Let me ask you, as an individual, in the hearing of this message this morning, who is your cornerstone? For most Americans, just living their average everyday life, maybe they're their own cornerstone. You guys familiar with um, AA groups? They talk about a higher power and so forth. And, you know, people say, well, this group is my higher power. Maybe myself is my higher power. In that context, there is an affirmation of submission to a higher authority. But I'm here to tell you that there is only one ultimate true higher power that you can submit to and escape the lashes of God's judgment, and that is the Lord Himself. Who is your cornerstone? Who is your higher power? Are you your own higher power? Is your friend group your higher power? Is the perception of others your higher power? Is our government's promises, the political administration that might be voted for or empowered at any given time? As we've mentioned during the time of this coronavirus, I think it bears repeating, is hope through the medical community, through experts in technological and scientific fields. Is that your higher power? Is that your cornerstone? Is that your hope of salvation in a time of great pandemic? I ask you, who is your cornerstone? Again, cornerstone. It's a place, right, of surety and value. There's only one. It's a place that will, though tested, prove sufficient. It's, as we have uh, learned in the context here, it's a place of grounded assurance in chaotic times, times of uncertainty, times that are volatile. While the world is shaken, you are not. While there's conflict, scourge, and threat of war and judgments all around you, do you have a place of grounded assurance in times like these? Do you place your faith, that is to say, in Christ alone? He is the immovable fixture of truth and order. He alone is the foundation of a nation or an individual soul to be able to stand. He is truth and order and stability and defense and permanence. And He is a supernatural source of living water unto eternal life. That's an additional picture of stone. You remember in the wilderness of the wanderings of God's people, there was a stone that gave forth water for them and their thirst in this desert wilderness. And that was speaking to Christ. Christ was that stone. That is to say, Christ is a supernatural source of living water unto eternal life as well as the foundation for a well-built church home, individual, nation, etc. Who is your cornerstone? Because the whip is passing through. You hear news story after news story, and you hear of, you know, a thousand dead and a more thousand dead, you know, as we read the news about this virus. And it's just like we can almost feel that whipping, can't we, in the messages that come across in these media outlets and so forth. There may be a resurgence in the second wave in the fall, and it begins to beat us down. And it reminds us that God's judgments are real. And the only way to escape them is if someone was whipped for you. Look up here, if you would. This is the communion table, the Lord's table. And at this table, there are two elements. Children, help me. What does the bread remind us of? Jesus' body. Again, children, I ask you, what does the juice remind us of? That's right. Jesus' body was broken. It was whipped, it was bruised, it was pierced, it was killed for you. And without that whipping on his back, you will have to be judged 
for your own sins. Jesus' blood was spilled on our behalf. He was the only righteous, perfect sacrifice that could do such a thing. And so at His table today, that is what's pictured right here. The way that we can escape the whip of God's judgments is through the whip that, was, that took our judgments on Christ's back. Surely He, Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So as we transition mere moments here to partake at the communion table today, I beg of you, remember the context and the meaning of this meal that is before us. Christ has supplied for us bread in the wilderness, even His own body broken for you. Christ has supplied for us living water unto eternal life, even His shed blood, taking the judgments of God in your place. Do you believe that? Do you believe that with all your heart and soul? If you do, then you will escape the lashes of hell. You will escape the judicial reckoning when you stand before Him on that final day. And you will, say, you will hear, enter into my place of favor, good and faithful servant, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the foundation of our faith, Jesus Christ. We thank you that his body took the lashes that we deserved. I pray, Lord, that as your word goes forth, it would be a place of assurance and security, stability, a foundational hope for every soul within the hearing of this message. But that means, Lord, necessarily, if they are outside the fold, they must confess their sins. Turn to you, repenting, Lord, turning from their old way of living and placing their hope and their absolute assurance in what Christ has done for them. I pray that that would, be in the that would be the case for any unbeliever within the hearing of these words today. For the believers in this room, I pray that through your gospel proclaimed and your gospel portrayed in this ceremony here today at your table, that we would be freshly awakened to the reality of the precious blood shed for us and the perfect body without blemish or spot broken in our place. And let this be an equipping tool for your church to rise us up out of our lethargy and complacency to speak and to stand boldly where warranted. And as you provide opportunity to call even leaders who, leaders who scoff at your word to repent and to turn, lest they face the lashes of a holy and righteous God. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that is found in our rock, Jesus Christ. May he be glorified in this service and in our lives as we move from this place later. In his name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.